0: Dear brothers and sisters, we express our deepest feelings of love and gratitude for you. We are grateful for our assignments among you. On a recent flight, our pilot announced that we would encounter turbulence during our descent and that all passengers must fasten their seat belts securely. Sure enough, turbulence came. It was really rough. Across the aisle and a couple of rows behind me, a terrified woman's panicked. With each frightening drop and jarring bump, she screamed loudly. Her husband tried to comfort her, but to no avail. Her hysterical shouts persisted until we passed through that zone of turbulence to a safe landing. During her period of anxiety, I felt sorry for her. Because faith is the antidote for fear, I silently wished that I could have strengthened her faith. Later, as passengers were leaving the aircraft, this woman's husband spoke to me. He said, I'm sorry my wife was so terrified. The only way I could comfort her was to tell her that Elder Nelson is on this flight, so you don't need to worry. I'm not sure that my presence on that flight should have given her any comfort. But I will say that one of the realities of mortal life is that our faith will be tested and challenged. Sometimes those tests come as we face what appear to be life and death encounters. For this frightened woman, a violently rocking plane presented one of those moments when we come face to face with the strength of our faith. When we speak of faith, the faith that can move move mountains, we're not speaking of faith in general, but of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Faith in the Lord Jesus Christ can be bolstered as we learn about Him and live our religion. The doctrine of Jesus Christ was designed by the Lord to help us increase our faith. In today's vernacular, however, the word religion can mean different things to different people. The word religion literally means to ligate again or to tie back to God. The question we might ask ourselves is, are we securely tied to God so that our faith shows, or are we actually tied to something else? For example, I've overheard conversations on Monday mornings about professional athletic games that took place on the preceding Sunday. For some of these avid fans, I have wondered if their religion would tie them back only to some kind of a bouncing ball. We might each ask ourselves, where is our faith? Is it in a team? Is it in a brand? Is it in a celebrity? Even the best teams can fail. Celebrities can fade. There is only one in whom your faith is always safe, and that is in the Lord Jesus Christ. And you need to let your faith show. God declared in the first of His Ten Commandments, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. He also said, Look unto me in every thought, doubt not, Fear not! Yet so many people look only to their bank balance for peace or to fellow human beings for models to follow. Clinicians, academicians, and politicians are often put to a test of faith. In pursuit of their goals, will their religion show, or will it be hidden? Are they tied back to God? or to man. I had such a test decades ago when one of my medical faculty colleagues chastised me for failing to separate my professional knowledge from my religious convictions. He demanded that I not combine the two. How can I do that? Truth is truth. It is not divisible, and any part of it cannot be set aside. Whether truth emerges from a scientific laboratory or through revelation, all truth emanates from God. All truth is part of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Yet I was being asked to hide my faith. I did not comply with my colleague's request. I let my faith show. In all professional endeavors, rigorous standards of accuracy are required. Scholars cherish their freedom of expression. But full freedom cannot be experienced if part of one's knowledge is ruled out of bounds by edicts of men. Spiritual truth cannot be ignored, especially divine commandments. Keeping divine commandments brings blessings Every time. Breaking divine commandments brings a loss of blessings. Every time. Problems abound in this world because it is populated by imperfect people. Their objectives and desires are heavily influenced by their faith or lack of it. Many put other priorities ahead of God. Some challenge the relevance of religion in modern life. As in every age, so today there are those who mock or decry the free exercise of religion. Some even blame religion for any number of the world's ills. Admittedly, there have been times when atrocities have been committed in the name of religion, but living the Lord's pure religion, which means striving to become a true disciple of Jesus Christ, is a way of life and a daily commitment that will provide divine guidance. As you practice your religion, you are exercising your faith. You are letting your faith show. The Lord knew that His children would need to learn how to find Him. For straight is the gate, He said, and narrow the way that leadeth unto exaltation, and few there be that find it. The scriptures provide one of the best ways to find and stay on course. Scriptural knowledge also provides precious protection. For example, throughout history, Infections, like childbirth fever, claimed the lives of many innocent mothers and babies. Yet the Old Testament had the correct principles for the handling of infected patients written more than 3,000 years ago. Many people perished because man's quest for knowledge had failed to heed the word of the Lord. My dear brothers and sisters, what are we missing in our lives if we are ever learning but never able to come to the knowledge of the truth? We can gain great knowledge from the scriptures and obtain inspiration through prayers of faith. Doing so will help us as we make daily decisions, especially when the laws of man are created and enforced. God's laws must ever be our standard. In dealing with controversial issues, we should first search for God's guidance. We should liken all scriptures unto us for our profit and learning. Danger lurks when we try to divide ourselves with expressions such as, my private life or even My best behavior, if one tries to segment his or her life into such separate compartments, one will never rise to the full stature of one's personal integrity, never to become all that his or her true self could be. The temptation to be popular may prioritize public opinion above the Word of God. Political campaigns and marketing strategies widely employ public opinion polls to shape their plans. Results of those polls are informative, but they could hardly be used as grounds to justify disobedience to God's commandments. Even if everyone is doing it, wrong is never right. Evil, error, and darkness will never be truth, even if popular. A scriptural warning so declares, Woe unto them that call evil good and good evil, that put darkness for light and light for darkness, After World War I, a rather risque song became popular. In promoting immorality, it vowed that 50 million people cannot be wrong. But in fact, 50 million people can be wrong, totally wrong. Immorality is still immorality in the eyes of God, who one day will judge all of our deeds and desires. Contrast the fear and faithlessness so prevalent in the world today with the faith and courage of my dearly beloved daughter Emily, who now lives on the other side of the veil. As mortal life was leaving her cancer-ridden body, she could barely speak. But with a smile on her face, she said to me, Daddy, don't worry about me. I know I will be all right. Emily's faith was showing, showing brightly in that tender moment, right when we needed it most. This beautiful young mother of five had full faith in her Heavenly Father. In His plan and in the eternal welfare of her family, she was securely tied back to God. She was totally faithful to covenants made with the Lord and with her husband. She loved her children but was at peace despite her impending separation from them. She had faith in her future and theirs, too, because she had faith in our Heavenly Father and His Son. In 1986, President Thomas S. Monson said, Of course we will face fear, experience ridicule, and meet opposition. Let us have the courage to defy the consensus, the courage to stand for principle. Courage, not compromise, brings the smile of God's approval. Remember that all men have their fears, but those who face their fears with faith have courage as well. President Monson's counsel is timeless. So I plead with you, my dear brothers and sisters, day after day on your path toward your eternal destiny increase your faith, proclaim your faith, let your faith show. I pray that you will be securely tied back to God, that His eternal truths will be etched on your heart forever. And I pray that throughout your life you will let your faith show. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.
1: Hastening family history and temple work in our day is essential for the salvation and exaltation of families. Just before his death from cancer in 1981, the controversial writer, William Soroyan, told the press, Everybody has to die, but I always believed an exception would be made in my case. (laughs) Now what? The now what in the face of death in this life and the now what in contemplation of life after death are at the heart of the questions of the soul that the restored gospel of Jesus Christ answers so beautifully in the Father's plan of happiness. In this life, we laugh, we cry, we work, we play, we live, and then we die. Job asked the succinct question, If a man die, shall he live again? The answer is a resounding yes, because of the atoning sacrifice of the Savior. Part of Job's diverse preamble to this question is interesting. Man that is born of woman is a few days, he cometh forth like a flower, and is cut down. There is hope of a tree, if it be cut down, that it will sprout again, and that the tender branch thereof will not cease and bring forth boughs like a plant." Our Father's plan is about families. Several of our most poignant scriptures use the concept of the tree with its roots and branches as an analogy. In the closing chapter of the Old Testament, Malachi, in describing the second coming of the Savior, vividly uses this analogy. Speaking of the proud and wicked, he notes that they shall be burned as stubble and that it shall leave them neither root nor branch. Malachi closes this chapter with the Lord's reassuring promise. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord, and he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children and the heart of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse." At the dawn of the Restoration, Moroni reemphasized this message in his initial instruction to young Joseph Smith in 1823. Christians and Jews the world over accept the Old Testament account of Elijah. He was the last prophet to hold the sealing power of the Melchizedek priesthood before the time of Jesus Christ. Elijah's return occurred in the Kirtland Temple on April third, 1836. He declared he was fulfilling Malachi's promise. He committed the priesthood keys for sealing families in this dispensation. Elijah's mission is facilitated by what is sometimes called the Spirit of Elijah, which, as Elder Russell M. Nelson has taught, is a manifestation of the Holy Ghost bearing witness of the divine nature of the family. The Savior was emphatic about the necessity of baptism. He taught, except a man be born of the water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. The Savior was personally baptized to set the example. What about the deceased who have not been baptized? On October 11, 1840, in Nauvoo, the late Kimball wrote a letter to her husband, Elder Heber C. Kimball, who, with other members of the Twelve, was serving a mission in Great Britain. The October General Conference had been held a few days before. I quote from parts of late's personal letter, We had the largest and most interesting conference that ever has been since the Church was organized. President Joseph Smith has opened a new and glorious subject that is, being baptized for the dead. Paul speaks of it in 1 Corinthians 15th chapter, 29th verse. Joseph has received a more full explanation of it by revelation. He says it is the privilege of members of this church to be baptized for all their kinfolks. That have def- died before this gospel came forth. By so doing, we act as agents for them and give them the privilege of coming forth in the first resurrection. He says they will have the gospel preached to them in prison. Vallate added, I want to be baptized for my mother. Is not this a glorious doctrine? End of quote. The essential doctrine of uniting families came forth line upon line and precept upon precept. Vicarious ordinances are at the heart of welding together eternal families, connecting roots to branches. The doctrine of family in relation to family history and temple work is clear. The Lord, in initial revelatory instructions, referred to baptism for your dead. Our doctrinal obligation is to our own ancestors. This is because the celestial organization of heaven is based on families. The First Presidency has encouraged members, especially youth and young single adults, to emphasize family history work and ordinances for their own family names or the names of ancestors of their ward and stake members. We need to be connected to both our roots and branches. The thought of being associated in the eternal realm is indeed glorious. Wilford Woodruff indicated that the Prophet Joseph Smith lived long enough to lay the foundation for temple work. The last time he ever met with the Quorum of the Twelve was when he gave them their endowments. After the Prophet's martyrdom, the Saints completed the Nauvoo Temple and the sealing power was used to bless thousands of faithful members before the exodus to the Mountain West. Thirty years later, at the completion of the St. George Temple, President Brigham Young noted the eternal significance of saving ordinances finally being available for both the living and the dead. This is simply stated by President Wilford Woodruff. There is hardly any principle the Lord has revealed that I have rejoiced more in than in the redemption of our dead, that we will have our fathers, our mothers, our wives, and our children with uh, with us in the family organization in the morning of the first resurrection and in the celestial kingdom. These are grand principles. They are worth every sacrifice. What a great time to be alive! This is the last dispensation, and we can fill the hastening of the work of salvation in every area where a saving ordinance is involved. We now have temples across much of the world to provide these saving ordinances. Attending the temple for spiritual renewal, peace, safety, and direction in our lives is also a great blessing. Less than a year after President Thomas S. Monson was called as an apostle, he dedicated the Los Angeles Temple genealogical library. He spoke of deceased ancestors waiting for the day when you and I will do the research which is necessary to clear the way and likewise go into the house of God and perform that work that they cannot perform. When then-Elder Monson delivered those dedicatory remarks on June 20th, 1964, there were only 12 operating temples. During the period President Monson has served in the senior councils of the Church, 130 of our 142 operating temples have had their initial dedication. It is nothing short of miraculous to see the hastening of the work of salvation in our day. Twenty-eight more temples have been announced and are in various stages of completion. Eighty-five percent of the Church now live within 200 miles of a temple. Family history technology has also advanced dramatically. President Howard W. Hunter declared in March of 1995, "...we have begun using information technology to hasten the sacred work of providing ordinances for the deceased." The role of technology has been accelerated by the Lord Himself. However, we stand only on the threshold of what we can do with these tools. In the 19 years since this prophetic statement, the acceleration of technology is almost unbelievable. A 36-year-old mother of young children recently exclaimed to me, just think. We have gone from microfilm readers in dedicated family history centers to sitting at my kitchen table with my computer doing family history after my children are finally asleep. Brothers and sisters, our family history centers are now in our homes. Temple and Ham family history work is not just about us. Think of those on the other side of the veil waiting for the saving ordinances that would free them from the bondage of spirit prison. Prison is defined as a state of confinement or captivity. Those in captivity might be asking William Soroyan's question, now what? One faithful sister shared a special spiritual experience in the Salt Lake Temple. While in the confirmation room after a vicarious confirmation ordinance was pronounced, She heard, and the prisoner shall go free. She felt a great sense of urgency for those who were waiting for their baptismal and confirmation work. Upon returning home, she searched the scriptures for the phrase she had heard. She found Joseph Smith's declaration in section 128 of the Doctrine and Covenants. Let your hearts rejoice and be exceedingly glad. Let the earth break forth into singing. Let the dead speak forth anthems of eternal praise to the King Emmanuel, who hath ordained before the world was that which would enable us to redeem them out of their prison, for the prisoners shall go free. The question is, what do we need to do? The Prophet Joseph's counsel was to present in the temple the record of our dead, which shall be worthy of all ac- acceptation. The leadership of the Church has issued a clarion call to the rising generation to lead the way and the use of technology to experience the spirit of Elijah, to search out their ancestors, and perform temple ordinances for them. Much of the heavy lifting and hastening the work of salvation for both the living and the dead will be done by you young people. If the youth in each ward will not only go to the temple and do baptisms for their dead, but also work with their families and other ward members to provide the family names for the ordinance work they perform, both they and the Church will be greatly blessed. Don't underestimate the influence of the deceased in assisting your efforts and the joy of ultimately meeting those you serve. The eternally significant blessing of uniting our own families is almost beyond comprehension. In the worldwide membership of the church, 51% of adults currently do not have both parents in the family tree section of the church's family search internet side. 65% of adults do not have all four grandparents listed. Remember, we without our roots and branches cannot be saved. Church members need to obtain and input this vital information. We finally have the doctrine, the temples, and the technology for families to accomplish this glorious work of salvation. I suggest one way this might be done. Families could hold a family tree gathering. This should be a recurring effort. Everyone would bring existing family history, stories, and photos, including cherished possessions of grandparents and parents. Our young people are excited to learn about the lives of family members, where they came from, and how they lived. Many have had their hearts turned to the fathers. They love the stories and photos, and they have the technological expertise to scan and upload these stories and photos to Family Tree and connect source documents with ancestors to preserve these for all time. Of course, the main objective is to determine what ordinances still need to be done and make assignments for the essential temple work. The My Family booklet can be utilized to help record family information, stories, and photos that can then be uploaded to Family Tree. Family commitments and expectations should be at the top of our priorities to protect our divine destiny. For those who are looking for more fruitful use of the Sabbath day for the family as a whole, the hastening of this work is fertile ground. One mother glowingly tells how her 17-year-old son gets on the computer after church on Sunday to do family history work and her 10-year-old son loves to hear the stories and see pictures of his ancestors. This has blessed their entire family to experience the spirit of Elijah. Our precious roots and branches must be nourished. Jesus Christ gave His life as a vicarious Atonement. He resolved the ultimate question raised by Job. He overcame death for all mankind which we could not do for ourselves. We can, however, perform vicarious ordinances and truly become saviors on Mount Zion for our own families in order that we with them might be exalted as well as saved. I bear witness of the Savior's atoning sacrifice and the certainty of the Father's plan for us and our families in the name of Jesus Christ, amen. With you, I join in a warm
2: welcome to these newly sustained brethren of the Seventy and with a grateful heart expressed to Elder Collister our love for him. 41 years ago, I climbed into the driver's seat of an 18 wheel semi truck with my beautiful wife Jan and our infant son Scotty. We were taking a heavy load of construction materials across several states. In those days, there were no seatbelt restrictions or infant car seats. My wife held our precious son in her arms. Her comment, We sure are high off the ground, should have given me a clue about her feelings of apprehension. As we made our descent over historic Donner Pass, a steep section of highway, the cab of the semi suddenly and unexpectedly filled with smoke, very thick smoke. It was difficult to see, and we could hardly breathe. With a heavy rig, brakes alone are not enough to rapidly decrease speed. So using the engine brakes and gearing down, I frantically attempted to stop. Just as I was pulling to the side of the road, but before we had come to a full stop, my wife opened the door of the cab and jumped out with our baby in her arms. (laughs) I watched helplessly as they tumbled in the dirt. As soon as I had the semi stopped, I bolted from the smoking cab. With adrenaline pumping, I ran through the rocks and weeds and held them in my arms. Jan's forearms and elbows were battered and bleeding, but thankfully she and our son were both breathing. I just held them close as the dust settled on the side of the highway. As my heartbeat normalized and I caught my breath, I blurted out, What in the world were you thinking? Do you know how dangerous that was? You could have been killed! She looked back at me with tears running down her smoke-smudged cheeks and said something that pierced my heart and still rings in my ears. I was just trying to save our son. I realized in that moment she thought the engine was on fire, fearing the truck would explode and we would die. I, however, knew it was an electrical failure, hazardous but not fatal. I looked at my precious wife, softly rubbing the head of our infant son, Scotty, and wondered what kind of woman would do something so courageous and utterly irrational. (laughs) This situation could have been as emotionally hazardous as our literal engine failure. Gratefully, after enduring the silent treatment for a reasonable amount of time. Each of us believing the other person was at fault, we finally expressed the emotions that were churning beneath our heated outbursts. Shared feelings of love and fear for the other's safety kept the hazardous incident from proving fatal to our cherished marriage. Paul warned, let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but only that which is good and edifying that it may minister grace unto the hearers. His words resonate with purity. What does the phrase, no corrupt communication, mean to you? We all regularly experience highly charged feelings of anger, our own and others. We have seen unchecked anger erupt in public places. We have experienced it as a sort of emotional electrical short at sporting events, in the political arena, And even in our own homes, children sometimes speak to beloved parents with tongues as sharp as blades. Spouses who have shared some of life's richest and most tender experiences lose vision and patience with each other and raise their voices, each of us, though covenant children of a loving Heavenly Father have regretted jumping headlong from the high seat of self-righteous judgment and spoken with abrasive words before we understood a situation from another's perspective. We have all had the opportunity to learn how destructive words can take a situation from hazardous to fatal. A recent letter from the First Presidency states clearly The gospel of Jesus Christ teaches us to love and treat all people with kindness and civility even when we disagree. What a masterful reminder that we can and should participate in continuing civil dialogue, especially when we view the world from differing perspectives. In Proverbs, Solomon counsels, A soft answer turneth away wrath, but grievous words stir up anger. A soft answer consists of a reasoned response, disciplined words from a humble heart. It does not mean we never speak directly or that we compromise doctrinal truth. Words that may be firm in information can be soft in spirit. The Book of Mormon contains a striking example of affirming language also given in the context of a marital disagreement. The sons of Sariah and Lehi had been sent back to Jerusalem to get the brass plates and had not returned. Sariah believed her sons were in harm's way, and she was filled with anger and needed someone to blame. Listen to the story through the eyes of her son Nephi. For my mother had supposed that we had perished in the wilderness, and she also had complained against my father, telling him he was a visionary man, saying, Thou hast led us forth from the land of our inheritance, and my sons are no more and we perish in the wilderness." Now let's consider what Sariah may have been thinking. She was filled with anxiety about her quarrelsome sons returning to the place where her husband's life had been threatened. She had traded her lovely home and friends for a tent and isolation in the wilderness while still in her childbearing years. Pushed to the breaking point of her fears, it seems like Soraya jumped heroically, if not rationally, from the height of a hurtling truck in an attempt to protect her family. She expressed legitimate concerns to her husband in the language of anger and doubt and blame, a language in which the entire human race seems to be surprisingly proficient. The prophet Lehi listened to the fear that underpinned his wife's anger. Then he made a disciplined response in the language of compassion. First, he owned the truth of what things looked like from her perspective. And my father spake unto her, saying, I know that I'm a visionary man, but if I had tarried at Jerusalem, we would have perished with my brethren. Then her husband addressed her fears concerning the welfare of their sons, saying, But behold, I have obtained a land of promise, and I know that the Lord will deliver my sons out of the hands of Laban. And after this manner of language did my father Lehi comfort my mother." There exists today a great need for men and women to cultivate respect for each other across wide distances of belief and behavior and across deep canyons of conflicting agendas. It is impossible to know all that informs our minds and hearts or even to fully understand the context for the trials and choices we each face. Nevertheless, what would happen to the corrupt communication Paul spoke about if our own position included empathy for another's other's experience first? Fully owning the limits of my own imperfections and rough edges I plead with you to practice asking this question. What are you thinking? When our truck cab filled with smoke, my wife acted in the bravest manner she could imagine to protect our son. I, too, acted as a protector when I questioned her choice. Shockingly, it didn't matter who was more right. What mattered was listening to each other, and understanding the other's perspective. The willingness to see through each other's eyes will transform corrupt communication into ministering grace. The Apostle Paul understood this, and on some level, each of us can experience it too. It may not change or solve the problem, but the more important possibility may be whether ministering grace could change us. I bear humble witness that we can minister grace through compassionate language when the cultivated gift of the Holy Ghost pierces our hearts with empathy for the feelings and context of others. It enables us to transform hazardous situations into holy places. I testify of a loving Savior who looketh on our hearts and cares what we are thinking. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.
3: amen. A little boy was practicing the piano, and a salesman, upon seeing him through the window, asked, Is your mother home? to which the child replied, And what do you think? Our five dear children play the piano thanks to the motivation of my wife. When the teacher arrived at our home, our son, Adrian, would run and hide in order to skip his lesson. But one day, something marvelous occurred. He began to love music so much that he continued practicing on his own. If we could reach that point in the process of our conversion, it would be marvelous. It would be wonderful to have a desire deep in our hearts to keep the commandments without anyone constantly reminding us and a firm conviction that if we followed the right path. We will have the blessings promised in the scriptures. Several years ago, I went to Arches National Park with my wife, our daughter Evelyn, and a family friend. One of the most famous arches there is called Delicate Arch. We decided to walk about 1.5 miles, climbing the mountain in order to reach the arch. We started off on our pathway with great enthusiasm. But after walking a short stretch, they needed to rest. Because of my desire to get there, I decided to continue on alone. Without paying attention to the path I ought to take, I followed a man in front of me who seemed to be moving forward with great surety. The pathway became more and more difficult, and I had to jump from one rock to another. Because of that difficulty, I was sure that women in my group would never make it. Suddenly, I saw a delicate arch, but to my great surprise, I saw that it was in an area inaccessible to me. With great frustration, I decided to go back. I waited impatiently until we met up again. My immediate question was, Did you reach Delicate Arch? They happily told me that they had. They explained that they had followed the signs showing the way, and with care and effort, they had reached their destination. Unfortunately, I had taken the wrong way. What a great lesson I learned that day! How often do we make a mistake about the right way, letting ourselves be led along by the trends of the world? We need to continually ask ourselves if we are being doers of the words of Jesus Christ. A marvelous teaching is found in the book of John. Abide in me, and I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, except it abide in the vine. No more can ye except ye abide in me. I am the vine, ye are the branches. He that abided in me, and he in him the same bringeth forth much fruit. For without me ye can do nothing." Using this analogy, we can see the very close, transcendent relationship that exists with Jesus Christ and the importance He places on each one of us. He's the root and the trunk that conducts the living water to us, the sap that will be nourished so that we can produce much fruit. Jesus Christ taught us in such a way that as branches or being dependent upon Him, we would never underestimate the value of His teachings. There are some mistakes that may be serious, and if we do not correct them in time, they can permanently lead us off the right path. If we repent and accept correction, these experiences will allow us to humble ourselves change our actions, and once again, draw closer to our Heavenly Father. I want to give an example of this concept by making reference to one of the most dramatic moments that the Prophet Joseph Smith experienced, as mentioned other hails. Through this experience, the Savior has given us invaluable teachings regarding principles that we ought to keep in mind throughout our lives. It happened when Martin Harris lost the 116 translated pages of the first part of the Book of Mormon. After repenting for not following God's counsel, the prophet received the revelation that is found in Section 3 of the Doctrine and Covenants. From what is written in verses 1 to 7, I wish to highlight three principles that we should always remember. The works and the purposes of God cannot be frustrated. We must not fear man more than God. There is a need of constant repentance. In verse 13, the Lord teaches us four actions that we should never do. Say that not the counsel of God. Break the most sacred promises made before God. Depend upon our own judgment both in our own wisdom. I pray that it will not lose sight of the way, so that we may always be connected with the heavens, so that the currents of the world do not sweep us away. If any one of you reaches the point of abandoning the Lord's way, at any point along that way, with great remorse, you will feel the bitterness of having said that not the counsels of God, of having broken the most sacred promises made before God, of having trusted in your own wisdom, of having boasted in your own wisdom. If this is the case, I exhort you to repent and come back to the right way. One time, a grandchild, called his grandfather, to wish him a happy birthday. He asked him how old he was. He said that he had reached 70 years. His grandson thought for a moment and then asked, Grandpa, did you start all the way back at one? (laughs) During childhood and youth, people think they will never become old. The idea of death never takes root. That is for very, very old people. And reaching that point is still an eternity away. As time goes on, months and seasons go by. Until the wrinkles begin to appear, energy is reduced. The need for doctor visits becomes more frequent, and so on. The day will come in which we shall again meet up with our Redeemer and Savior, Jesus Christ. I plead that on that sacred and sublime occasion, we can recognize Him because of the knowledge we have of Him and because of having followed His teachings. He will show us the marks in His hands and feet and we will join together in a lasting embrace, weeping for joy at having followed His way. I testify to the four ends of the earth that Jesus Christ lives. He exhorts us, hearken, O ye nations of the earth, and hear the words of that God who made you. May we have the capacity to grasp Give heed, comprehend, and correctly interpret the message of God God who made us, so as not to stray from His way. I plead in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.
4: Brothers and sisters, of all the lessons we learn from the life of the Savior, None is more clear and powerful than the lesson of obedience. In the pre mortal council in heaven, Lucifer rebelled against his heavenly father's plan. Those who followed Lucifer earned, ended their eternal progression. Be careful who you follow. Then Jesus expressed His commitment to obey, saying, Father, thy will be done, and the glory be thine forever. Throughout His ministry, He suffered temptations, but gave them no heed. Indeed, He learned obedience by the things which He suffered. Because our Savior was obedient, He atoned for our sins, making possible our Resurrection and preparing the way for us to return to our Heavenly Father, who knew we would make mistakes as we learned obedience in mortality. When we obey, we accept His sacrifice. For we believe that through the Atonement of Jesus Christ, all mankind may be saved by obedience to the laws, ordinances, and commandments given in the gospel. Jesus taught us to obey in simple language that is easy to understand. If you love me, keep my commandments and come, follow me. When we are baptized, we take upon us the name of Christ and enter into the covenant with God that we will be obedient unto the end of our lives. Each Sunday, we renew that baptismal covenant by partaking of the sacrament and witnessing that we are willing to keep the commandments. We seek forgiveness for any thoughts, feelings, or actions that are not in harmony with our Heavenly Father's will. As we repent, by turning away from disobedience and by beginning to obey again, we show our love for Him. As we live the gospel, we progress in our understanding of obedience. At times, we may be tempted to practice what I call natural man's obedience, in which we disobediently reject God's law in favor of our wisdom or our desires or even popularity. Because this is widely practiced by so many, this perversion of obedience diminishes God's standards in our culture and in our laws. At times, members may participate in selective obedience, claiming to love God and honoring God while picking and choosing which of His commandments and teachings and the teachings and counsels of its prophets we will fully follow. Some obey selectively because they cannot perceive all the reasons for a commandment, just as children do not always understand the reasons for their parents' counsel and rules. But we always know the reason we follow the prophets, for this is the Church of Jesus Christ, and it is the Savior who directs His prophets in all dispensations. As our understanding of obedience deepens, we recognize the essential role of agency. When Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane, He prayed three times to his Father in heaven, O my Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as Thou wilt. God would not overwrite the Savior's agency, yet He mercifully sent an angel to strengthen His beloved Son the Savior met another test on Golgotha, where He could have called upon legions of angels to take Him down from the cross. But He made His own choice to obediently endure to the end and complete His atoning sacrifice, even though it meant great suffering, even death. Spiritually. Mature obedience is the Savior's obedience. It is motivated by true love for Heavenly Father and His Son. When we willingly obey, as our Savior did, we cherish the words of our Heavenly Father, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And we look forward to hearing upon entering our Heavenly Father's presence, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of thy Lord. Using our agency to obey means choosing to do what is right and letting the consequence follow. It requires mastery and brings confident, eternal happiness and a sense of fulfillment to us, and by example to those around us. And it always includes a deep personal commitment to sustain priesthood leaders and follow their teachings and counsel. In choosing whether we will obey, it is always helpful to remember the consequences of our choices. Did Lucifer and his followers understand the consequences of choosing to reject Heavenly Father's plan? If so, why did they make such a terrible choice? We might ask ourselves a similar question. Why do any of us choose to be obedient, disobedient when we know the eternal consequences of sin? The scriptures provide an answer. The reason Cain and some of the children of Adam and Eve chose to disobey is because they love Satan more than God. Our love of the Savior is the key to the Savior-like obedience. As we strive to be obedient in today's world, we declare our love and respect for all of our Heavenly Father's children. Yet it is impossible for others to modify God's commandments, which were given for our good. For example, the commandment, Thou shalt not kill, nor do anything like unto it, is founded upon a spiritual law that protects all of God's children, even the unborn. Long experience suggests that when we ignore this law, immeasurable sorrow results. Yet many believe it is acceptable to terminate the life of an unborn child for reasons of preference or convenience. To rationalize disobedience does not change spiritual law or its consequences, but leads to confusion instability, wandering in strange paths, being lost, and grief. As disciples of Christ, we have a sacred obligation to uphold His laws and commandments and the covenants upon which we take upon us. In December 1831, some of the brethren were called upon to help rely on friendly feelings that had developed toward the Church. Through the Prophet Joseph Smith, the Lord directed them in an unusual, even surprising, way. confound your enemies. Call upon them to meet you both in public and in private. Wherefore, let them bring forth their strong reasons against the Lord no weapon that is formed against you shall prosper. And if any man lift his voice against you, he shall be confounded in mine own due time. Wherefore, keep my commandments. They are true and faithful." End of quote. The scriptures are full of examples of prophets who have learned the lessons of obedience by their experience. Joseph Smith was taught the consequences for yielding to the pressures of his benefactor, friend, and scribe, Martin Harris. In in response to Martin's pleas, Joseph asked the Lord for permission to loan the first 116 manuscript pages of the Book of Mormon so that Martin could show them to his family. But the Lord told Joseph to say no. Martin pled with Joseph to ask the Lord again. After Joseph's third request, the Lord gave permission for five specific people to review the manuscript. In a most solemn covenant, Martin bound himself to this agreement when he arrived home and pressures were brought to bear upon him. He forgot his solemn oath and permitted others to view the manuscript, with the result that by stratagem it passed out of his hands and they were lost. As a consequence, Joseph was rebuked by the Lord and was denied permission to continue to translate the Book of Mormon. Joseph suffered and repented of his transgression for yielding to the pressures of others. After a season Joseph was allowed to resume his translation work, Joseph learned a valuable lesson of obedience that served him the rest of his life. The prophet Moses provides another example. When Moses obediently took an Ethiopian wife, Miriam and Arian spoke against him. But the Lord rebuked them, saying, With Moses will I speak mouth to mouth. The Lord used this incredible incident to teach members of the Church in our dispensation. In 1830, Hiram Page claimed to receive revelation for the Church. The Lord corrected him and taught the Saints, Thou shalt be obedient unto the things which I shall give unto Joseph, even as Aaron, for he receiveth them even as Moses. Obedience brings blessings. And when we obtain any blessings from God, it is by obedience to that law upon which it is predicated Obedience is taught by example, by how we teach our children. Learn wisdom in thy youth. Yea, learn in thy youth to keep the commandments of God. Obedience makes us progressively stronger, capable of faithfully enduring tests and trials in the future. Oh, yes, obedience in Gethsemane per se prepared the Savior to obey endure to the end on Golgotha. My beloved brothers and sisters, the words of Alma express my feelings of my heart. And now, my beloved brother, I have said these things unto you that I might awaken in you to a sense of your duty to God, that ye may walk blameless before Him. And now I would, that ye should be humble, be submissive, and gentle, being diligent in keeping the commandments of God at all times. I bear my special witness that our Savior lives because He obeyed, every knee shall bow, and every tongue confess that He is our Savior. May we love Him so deeply and believe Him in faith so completely that we to obey and keep His commandments and return to live Him forever in the kingdom of God is my prayer. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.
5: As I have pondered my duty to share the gospel, I have reflected on loved ones whose tender influence helped me find the divinely appointed path that aided my spiritual progression. At vital times in my life, Father in Heaven blessed me with someone who cared for me enough to help guide my choices in an appropriate direction they observed these words of the Savior, For I have given you an example ye should do as I have done to you. When I was a young child, my father was not a member of the Church, and my mother had become less active. We lived in Washington, D.C., and my mother's parents lived 2,500 miles away in the state of Washington. Some months after my eighth birthday, Grandmother Whittle came across the country to visit us. Grandmother was concerned that neither I nor my older brother had been baptized. I don't know what she said to my parents about this, but I do know that one morning she took my brother and me to the park and shared with us her feelings about the importance of being baptized and attending Church meetings regularly. I don't remember the specifics of what she said, but her words stirred something in my heart, and soon my brother and I were baptized. Grandmother continued to support us. I remember that any time my brother or I were assigned to give a talk in Church, we would call her on the telephone for some suggestions. Within a few days, a handwritten talk would arrive by mail. After some times, her suggestion attained to an outline requiring more effort on our part. Grandmother used just the right amount of courage and respect to help our father recognize the importance of his driving us to the church for our meetings in every appropriate way. She helped us to feel a need for the gospel in our lives. Most importantly, we knew grandmother loved us and that she loved the gospel. She was a marvelous example. How grateful I am for the testimony she shared with me when I was very young. Her influence changed the direction of my life for eternal good. Later, as I was about to graduate from the university, I fell in love with a beautiful young woman named Janine Watkins. I thought she was beginning to have some deep feelings for me also. One night, when we were talking about the future, she carefully wove into the discussion a statement that changed my life forever. She said, When I marry, it will be to a faithful, returned missionary in the temple. I hadn't thought much about a mission before then. (laughs) That night, my motivation to consider a mission service changed dramatically. (laughs) I went home, and I could think of nothing else. I was awake all night long. I was completely distracted from my studies the next day. After many prayers, I made the decision to meet with my bishop and begin my missionary application. Janine never asked me to serve a mission for her. She loved me enough to share her conviction and then gave me the opportunity to work out the direction in my own mind. We both served missions and later were sealed in the temple. Jeanne's courage and commitment to her faith has made all the difference in our lives together. I am certain we would not have found the happiness we enjoy without her strong faith in the principle of serving the Lord first. She is a wonderful, righteous example. Both Grandmother Whittle and Janine loved me enough to share their conviction that the ordinances the gospel and serving Father in Heaven would bless my life. Neither of them coerced me or made me feel bad about the person I was. They simply loved me and loved Father in Heaven. Both knew He could do more with my life than I could on my own. Each courageously helped me in loving ways to find the greatest path to happiness. How can each of us become such a significant influence? We must be sure to sincerely love those we want to help in righteousness so they can begin to develop confidence in God's love. For so many in the world, the first challenge in accepting the gospel is to develop faith in the Father in Heaven who loves them perfectly. It's easier to develop that faith when they have friends or family members who love them in a similar way. Giving them confidence in your love can help them develop faith in God's love. Then through your loving, thoughtful communication, their lives will be blessed by your sharing lessons you have learned, experiences you have had, and principles you have followed to find solutions to your own struggles. Show your sincere interest in their well-being then share your testimony of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You can help in ways that are grounded in principle and doctrine. Encourage those you love to seek to understand what the Lord would have them do. One way to do this is to ask them questions that make them think and then allow them sufficient time, whether days hours, months, or more to ponder and seek to work out the answers for themselves. You may need to help them know how to pray and how to recognize answers to their prayers. Help them to know the scriptures are a vital source of receiving and recognizing answers in that way You will help them prepare for future opportunities and challenges. God's purpose is to bring to pass the immortality and eternal life of man. That is fundamental to all we do. Sometimes we get so wrapped up in things that we find fascinating or become so consumed by mundane responsibilities that we lose sight of God's objectives. As you consistently focus your life on the most basic principles, you will gain an understanding of what you are to do, and you will produce more fruit for the Lord and more happiness for yourself. When you focus your life on the basic principles of the plan of salvation, You will better concentrate on sharing what you know because you understand the internal importance of the ordinances of the gospel. You will share what you know in a way that encourages your friends to want to be strengthened spiritually. You will help your loved ones to want to commit to obey all of His commandments and take upon Him themselves the name of Jesus Christ. Remember that the conversion of individuals is only part of the work. Always seek to strengthen families. Teach with a vision of the importance of families being sealed in the temple. With some families, it may take years. This is the case with my parents. After. Many years after I was baptized, my father was baptized, and later my family was sealed in the temple. My father served as a sealer in the temple, and my mother served there with him. When you have the vision of the sealing ordinances of the temple, you'll help build the kingdom of God on earth. Remember. Loving them is a powerful foundation for influencing those you want to help. The influence of my grandmother, Whittle, and my wife, Janine, would have been negligible had I not first known that they loved me and wanted me to have the best in life. As a companion to that love, trust them. In some cases, it may seem difficult to trust, but find some way to trust them. The children of Father in Heaven can do amazing things when they feel trusted. Every child of God in mortality chose the Savior's plan. Trust that given the opportunity, they will do so again. Share principles that help those you love to press forward along the path to eternal life. Remember, we all grow line upon line. You have followed that same pattern in your understanding of the gospel. Keep your sharing of the gospel simple. Your personal testimony of the Atonement of Jesus Christ is a powerful tool, accompanying resources are prayer, the Book of Mormon, and the other scriptures, and your commitment to priesthood ordinances. All of these will facilitate the direction of the Spirit, which is so crucially important for you to rely upon. To be effective and to do as Christ has done, Concentrate on this basic principle of the gospel. The Atonement of Jesus Christ makes possible our becoming more like our Father in Heaven so that we can live together eternally in our family units. There is no doctrine more fundamental to our work than the Atonement of Jesus Christ at every appropriate opportunity. Testify of the Savior and of the power of His atoning sacrifice. Use scriptures that teach of Him and why He is the perfect pattern for everyone in life. You will need to study diligently. Do not become so absorbed with trivial things that you miss learning the doctrine and teachings of the Lord. With a solid, personal, doctrinal foundation, you'll be a powerful source for sharing vital truths with others who desperately need them. We best serve our Father in Heaven by righteously influencing others and serving them. The greatest example, of whoever walked the Earth is our Savior, Jesus Christ. His mortal ministry was filled with teaching, serving and loving others. He sat down with individuals who were judged to be unworthy of his companionship. He loved each of them. He discerned their needs and taught them His gospel. He invited us to follow His perfect example. I know that His gospel is a path to peace and happiness in this life. May we remember to do as He has done by sharing our love, trust, and knowledge of truth with others who have not yet embraced the brilliant light of the gospel.